Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the October 11th, 2022 edition of Ask a Leader. Voting's already begun in California and a few other states around the country, and it's 27 days till the midterm elections. The first guest on the show will be tech sales executive and Irvine mayoral candidate Tom Choman. Then, in the second segment, we'll hear from Congresswoman Katie Porter, live folks, representing the 45th and running in the new 47th California Congressional District. We're moving off the Democratic Party's standard talking points because it's a fine time to head into some other policy areas for Ask a Leader Teachable Moments. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Irvine mayoral candidate Tom Choman. He is one of four candidates challenging incumbent Mayor Farah Khan. As a tech sales professional, Tom Choman currently is an account executive at Image Source in Costa Mesa and previously worked at Kyocera, Document Solutions America, MW Partners, K Force, Express Luck. Context TV, TCL Media, LG Electronics, and for the largest share of his career at Panasonic. His civic involvement includes American Youth Soccer Association, PTA, and the Boosters Club, and was part of the effort to collect more than 19,000 signatures for support of the Great Park Veterans Park. He completed his Bachelor's of Science in Urban Planning at Indiana University, Bloomington, Tom Choman comes to us today from his home in Irvine. We're recording this on October 10th. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Tom Choman. Hello, Claudia. Hello, UCI. This is Tom Choman. Glad to be here. I'm running for mayor. First time I'm doing this in 2002. Well, with ample servings of drama in this race, I'm going to continue to hew to policy in the advancement of voters' needs to know. So before we venture into your policy positions, Tom Choman. Why did you file to run for mayor, this being, as you said, your first bid to run for any political office? Well, that is a good question, Claudia. And some days I ponder why I did that. (laughs) (laughs) Today's been a good day, so I'm glad I did it today. Um, But it's, uh, I'll tell you, I I was asked a couple years ago to run um, in the Irvine elections because of the work I did on the Veterans Memorial Park Signature Gathering. I was pretty much the lead uh, um, person that was handling over 150 volunteers that gathered over 19,780 signatures, of which we only did 12,800. And that's sort of, uh, I enjoy being with the people. I was out there getting signatures. I was planning spots seven days a week for 150 volunteers to go and get signatures. It was a, a, a dawning six-month tax, six months past that we did right before COVID. And it was just rewarding to hear veterans come up and get their families to sign it. And some of them would drag people from the coffee shop. Hey, come on over. I'm a veteran. Tom's trying to get signatures. You know, we had uh, um, veterans getting signatures, Ed, and then Joyce, uh, you know, was out there five days a week. It was just an amazing effort to support the veterans. And a little bit why I got into that um, is my dad was uh, volunteered in the World War II in the Navy. He was in college his sophomore year at Drake University, and all his buddies were heading to the war. And he said, darn it, I'm, I'm not going to let them go by themselves. So he volunteered, got the Navy. He was a petty officer, a flagman on the ships out in the South Pacific, went over for a couple of years. Fortunately, he came back um, and, you know, my dad passed away in 1988 and I think this is something I could do for him. Um, and so I really got involved in this group and they allowed me to help out and um, really just asked me to run for office this time again. And the, the timing was right. I have a new different job and um, I've always been involved in civic duties um, back in South Bend, Indiana, where I grew up. Uh, here with all the children growing up in Irvine and the different youth activities, high school, uh, soccer when they were in elementary. But really what 
I guess what got me into the veterans thing is uh, a friend of mine was a appraiser and he was kind of telling me some things weren't going on right that he felt in Irvine, the city politics. And one of it was the, uh, how the veterans were moving around. The city wanted to trade 125 acres for a hundred acres by what they call the strawberry fields right next to the 22 lanes of freeways with uh, six streams running through it when they ran, could have been a floodplain. And uh, the fact was that property that was 125 acres was about $150 million more valuable than the 100 acres the city was giving the veterans. And at that point, the appraiser said, we got to do something. So uh, um, I kind of found out who I got involved, started going to city council meetings and met a few people. And they said, hey, give this veterans group a call. They might need some help. And, you know, that's kind of what got me here after living here 25 years. So on, we're recording this on the 10th and there's going to be a city council and a great park meeting on October 11th. So it will be picking up where it left off in the, the previous meeting. And that was, uh, I, we've covered this with other city council candidates, the council, not mayoral candidates uh, yet since that meeting, but it was a very, it was, it was a very different kind of planning process. So I guess, we have many different sections of municipal policy to cover, but since you talked about the Veterans Memorial Park and the Great Park planning being some, that's where your skin in the game is, is as a candidate, then we can, we'll just make that the first of the three topics, the main ones. So the, the planning process, were you involved when early on Kenny Smith was putting plans down to make this a sort of a multi, cultural multi-use recreational facility at the Great Park or did, was it later on? No, I really got involved in 2019 when my friend picked it up after they had stopped the Strawberry Fields uh, uh, Veteran Park and Cemetery. Of, of, um, coming from an urban planning background though, I was very aware of the Ken Smith plan and all the other plans and the back and forth and things like that. So uh, um, I always keep my eye on it, but I obviously got two feet in back in 2019. Okay, because a lot, a lot was done. I mean, I'm no, I'm, I'm assuming you're a pretty habitual voter, correct? Yes, all the time. Every all year. the time. And we had, I mean, 2012, that was a big inflection point in municipal politics. And of course, policy after that fact. So uh, this has been going on for quite some time. So I, I don't know if you had anything to say about the elements of the sort of the direction of decide first, plan later, transportation impacts, uses and all equity and all that. I don't know if there's something you want to comment about the most recent city council great park meetings. Well, you know, um, again, I was just a, a dad and had three children growing up back in 2012. It was certainly a change in Irvine politics. And that's where the football started passing around the park, the people, mm -hmm. the cemetery, the projects. You know, here we are you know, 10 years later, still trying to figure it out. And uh, I believe two weeks ago at their meeting, the Great Park in a rush statement really passed the uh, water polo complex and the um, 15,000 seat amphitheater. So that was uh, really talked about just a couple of times in city council meeting. I think to spend $130 million, and I believe they had a 500 page report that just came out the week before for people to study was a little rushed. Um, and, uh, I don't think the, uh, impact of, uh, half a million cars coming into the great park each year to go to 50 plus concerts was really studied, uh, by, uh, had the neighbors involved there. I mean, that's a huge amount of people coming into the park and that's if they all come in at the same time and leave right after the concert and not hang around people's yards or throw beer bottles in the yards as they walk through the neighborhoods. And I think that part of it wasn't studied as enough um, as far as it goes. You know, the, the, the concert venue, the amphitheaters really looks like a Taj Mahal. Um, it looks beautiful. It's a great outdoor venue. I mean, we all miss Irvine Amphitheater, um, but maybe putting it in the middle of the park, you know, I'm halfway question on it, but I, I look at the, the long-term financial benefits and maybe the financial cost to the city that, you know, they're doing the best case effort if, if say, they get 10,000 people at a concert. So it's a, 
you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little 50, 50 on that right now. Cause I don't know enough about it. I just got, and so I'm uh, um, water polo. My daughter played water polo. I'm kind of a water polo dad and, and, uh, you know, UC Irvine's got great, great water polo and just sort of, uh, you know, I think that's going to be a good benefit for the whole community. And really it's going to be a top-notch facility. And the fiscal and equity aspects of using that increment of Melarus property contributions of the abutting residents, how would you reconcile work with that neighborhood as mayor? Well, uh, I wouldn't live there. <laughs> considering I have zero say-so and where my money goes. Um, I feel really sorry for all the people in the Great Park right now that they have no say-so. I went to one Great Park meeting last month where the city manager talked about it and there was about 20 people there and he told us about spending $700 million. So part of it is, I don't think the Great Park realized where their money was gonna go. And two, there's a lot of apathy there right now, not getting involved. So it's kind of their fault also that uh, they weren't involved um, but I, I certainly think part of one of my um, goals here is to get district elections. There is no city council or no mayor that lives in the Great Park right now. No one has their foot in the door. No one really relates to those people in that area. And if we go to district elections, I'm sure one of the districts would be the Great Park. And, and they would have a city council member there that could speak up for them and explain things. And I think right now there's sort of... Uh, Again, kind of a, we've got a lot of money to spend in the Malarus tax and five points in the city. They're just spending it like wildfire. So, you know. Well, that is one of the topics in the interest of time to talk about the city council districts that, that we do not have in this sized town. So you have in one of your submissions to different civic entities, you have a couple of options you want to talk about that in a little bit more detail. Yeah, well, I grew up in Indiana and we had district elections. We had six districts in South Bend, Indiana, a town of 130,000. And that's sort of how I was familiar with it. And I imagine back, you know, 20 years ago with Irvine being that large with, you know, 150, 100,000 people, it worked okay. We're at 315,000. And uh, at large, you know, uh, you know, whether you run for city, mayor or city council member you got to spend the same amount of money you've got to canvas the same districts and it's very you know unless you have a lot of money unless you have a lot of backing by developers it's really hard to do it and win it you know so uh i think we get down to district elections it goes into fifty thousand people per district per se say we have six but something i also want to do i think this um uh you know the current uh at large i think we should have six council members and three at large that way we kind of have a little buffer of the at large talk looking over the whole city but we have really strong representatives in each of the six districts and i think that'll help everybody in the city be more represented than they are now plus one and then the mayor correct okay um, so that's yeah. 10 yeah and what actually what what happens in, in in the in the south bend indiana right now the mayor doesn't vote um, but she, he or she oversees the city, and that's why you get six council members and three at large to make an odd number of votes. Well, right. Well, in all big cities, as we're reminded, the council is the legislature and the mayor is the executive branch. There you go. That's exactly right. That's, that's what we share the some urban planning and, <laughs> and, and poli side when you were uh, doing your urban planning, I was doing the poli side. But the urban okay. Planning. So yeah. for those of you who've just joined us, we are talking with Tom Choman. He's a tech sales executive and an Irvine mayoral candidate, one of four candidates challenging the incumbent Mayor Farah Khan. So let's. Uh, so, did you have anything more to say about the the nope. way the districts would be and the, the mapping? I don't know if there are other templates that come from how these districts have been mapped in other cities in Orange County, or do you go to other? Uh, what, where's your template waiting for you to put, pull it off? Well, I, I, there's been a few made up, but really the, the key is getting city council to prove it. And then the city council would make up the geographic thing. Same way they do U.S. Congress. You know, they go by population and, and areas and like growth in the Great Park. They may only have 40,000 people right now, but they'll uh, build it. So there's when there's 50,000 people, they'll be representative. 
really, you know, Wood, Woodbridge could be one, you know, you got Turtle Rock and Shady Canyon, that area, another university. Then you go up to Deerfield, North Park one, and, and then you go Northwood and north of that Portola Hills, basically by geographics for the most part. Well, we do, we have the model of the statewide districting commission, and then we had the county board of supervisors. Those would be like two incredibly different templates. So that there's actually so many ways, uh, so many contracts struck. So I'll be very interested when we ever get to that step. I'm sure yes. we will someday, but that, that's quite, the, quite a process. Yeah. Well, let's yeah. talk about the all-American asphalt plant. That's another sort of an area that would have more immediate kind of representation. Were there a district to municipal district scenario? So what has been your take on how this emissions issue, toxic emissions from all-American asphalt plant with abutting neighbors, uh, how that would be better managed than the status quo? Well, that is definitely the largest polluter in Irvine, and I think we should do something about it. Um, let's be fair to the asphalt plant. They bought that property there in 1994, fair and square. Everybody approved it. No houses were out there. No one smelled it. Now, all of a sudden, we build houses out there. People start smelling it. Uh, Irvine Company just got approved for another 1,100 homes. I couldn't believe they're already grading out there right around the asphalt plant. Um, and uh, shame on them. However, you know, that's what's going on right now. But I, I really think uh, with the pollution that they're doing, the, the, the effects they're going to be having on the residents, the long-term effects, I really think as the mayor, I would work with the asphalt plant to move them to another area of the forest, the city, the county that has uh, less effects on people around them. And this isn't just saying, hey, you guys got to move. It's we got to put in our skin on it, uh, some money to, to move and make it worthwhile for them. They've got to pick up equipment and move it 10 miles, 20 miles. So, uh, you know, it's it's amazing how the city found $130 million last week for an amphitheater and they can't find a million dollars or $10 million to help move this asphalt plant. So that would really, you know, uh, we, we, we can't shove them out of there without helping them out. And this is important for the north, northeast part of the city to uh, change what's going on there with our largest polluter. So another large area, interesting everybody, all of the city of Irvine residents, rate payers, I'm talking, of course, about the Orange County Power Authority. So I would like, uh, as I see your position, uh, there is an accountability that you're talking about. So I want for you to explain there are separate tracks. There's an accountability wanting in how the Board of Orange County Power Authority has been running the executive staff that is running this organization, this entity. I'd like for you to talk about that. And I'm, I'm seeing a little bit of a tension between that accountability and achieving some climate goals. So let's talk about what is it about the OCPA that you think needs remedying, how you would do it, and how you're going to achieve the climate goals set by the city for 2030. Well, two good questions that I'm going to sort of answer separately. I think the mayor wants to put them together, and the renewable energy with electricity is certainly part of that, but Southern California Edison does a great job of that. Um, I don't believe more government is better government. I don't think the government should be involved competing against Southern California Edison that's already doing a good job with renewable energy. Um, I think the first day in office when I become mayor that I'm going to close this Orange County Power Authority on my first day in office. This is a boondoggle. This is a expense to the city of Irvine that we don't need. They said we we're going to have lower rates and our rates are actually going to be eight to 15% higher. People on this meeting haven't got their first bill, but in November expect a 10% increase in your electricity to get the same amount of renewable energy that Southern California is giving people that opted out. So it's uh, really, you know, it started out as a great idea to bring cleaner, cheaper energy to our city. What has happened, we've incredibly experienced inexperienced and incompetent management with consultants negotiating multi-million dollar contracts without any city oversight or disclosure. This is wrong. We put in $7 million of our taxpayer money and Mayor Khan doesn't want us to see the books. She just wants to spend our money. Show us the money, show us the books. 
she won't do that. That's why she's city's auditing, the county's auditing, the state's auditing, this boondoggle orange company power authority. And, uh, you know, the rate payers of Irvine should not have to take on the unknown and unqualified liability of what, what while political consultants take their million dollar payments up front. You know, there's an ongoing FBI investigation, a grand jury report, County of Orgies is considering exit strategy on this. The city should quantify immediately the liability as well as any liability to our residents and structure an exit from the Joint Powers Authority. Staying on only increases the risk and liability for all involved. Instead, the city should embark on a citywide climate change initiative with benefits our residents, including subsidies for solar battery storage to truly make Irvine clean and green energy. And that's the part on the climate part that I am all for. You know, let's focus, the state doesn't give any rebates, only the federal government on taxes. And we need to encourage every resident in Irvine to have a solar panel on their roof. And I think giving a $5,000 credit to get solar on the roof was a smarter solution than spending money and trying to get in the electricity business. Well, when I was doing some work on what kinds of options I should, as a ratepayer and a resident of Irvine, uh, decide on. And there are a number of community choice energy entities that are they're well established. Some of them go on for quite a, many years. And when I talked about sort of the crossroads I was at, and the suggestion was, tell them, I mean, you're in business, you're in the private sector, and you know how a ratepayer a customer expresses their preferences in the marketplace. And this seasoned person from the, the Sacramento Municipal Utility District said, you know, were you to go to option, the, the default option, it's your way, Claudia, of saying that you, you're telling the marketplace you want 100% renewables. Now, I, I, I'm going to leave the semantics about how do we know it's 100%, what's renewable definition. That, that's another intellectual honesty exercise I have with everybody I talk to. But I, I'm advised about the marketplace has to hear what we want the target to be. And it's not possible, is it, if we say Southern California Edison, just keep, you know, just, just keep improving incrementally right well they, they they can and they should and uh um you know it's definitely it's a tough topic uh you know i'm uh um i'll tell you i'm i challenge all my city council members that are running and the mayoral candidates that are running we all talk about this you may talk about it the students might talk about it but i took action last month and i got solar panels put on my house about three weeks ago Okay, something uh, I've always wanted to do. And, uh, you know, again, talk is cheap. I said, you know what, we're going to do it. I talked to my uh, finance person. He said, you'll pay it off in six and a half years. I got no incentives from the city. Uh, I do get 30% off my taxes, like some type of credit. And, and this is how you start one house at a time. And that's how you get renewable energy. We can't wait for the county or the state to do something. We have to do it internally and Irvine can do it. So I would like to know, um, well, the complication, I think another kind of casualty of how the Orange County Power Authority has operated is, Tom Toman, there's a tribal problem in uh, our politics in this city around that. What do you mean by that? There are those who are saying that, you know, the people that are advancing the OCPA that we've got to take it on faith. They're going to do it, uh, get this done. Uh, they are, they're in, their hearts in the right place. We'll do it no matter. They're very unquestioning and others are saying, burn it all down. So I, I see that in all the communities I've been interacting with people in around Irvine. And well, actually in the participating cities and others, but mostly in Irvine. So I, I don't know if how you as mayor would sort of bring those those sort of tribal divides together to, to press on and accomplish our greenhouse gas emission reduction. Well, I, I, I'll agree with you that their heart's in it and they meant well, but, you know, hiring someone to run a multi-million dollar company for $250,000 a year that has never been in the electric business is not, that's where the heart goes away. That's where stupidity comes in and ignorance. 
and I would begin by hiring someone from the Southern California Edison, and if I have to pay them more, that they 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 won't they will do a better job. That would be a start. You hire someone with experience when you're starting out a new company like that. You don't hire inexperienced political appointees to hope that they can do the job that's so important to this city, the state, and this country. And as I've I've been covering this for about two and a half or three years, so I've I've had all kinds of guests. I haven't call out because there is a tribal thing going on and I wanted to call that you know elephant in the room that's what I was doing um so there's more work there I just uh, we're all interested in climate we all have our successors that we owe a debt to managing the climate better so that's my my concern is about the highest level of performance with the best possible. We're, we're, and we're not getting that here. And I, my understanding is their, their goal is to only lose $43 million in the first two years. That's no way to run a business. It's no way to, for our tax dollars to go out the door. There's five cities involved in this and Irvine's the only one that has put a dime into it, $7 million. And I wanna see those books. If she didn't put our $7 million into it, she could hide those books like she's doing now. But once she put $7 million of taxpayers money in, it's time to open up the books. And she's going to wait till after the election to do it, to give it to the state, the county, and the city. So thank you, Tom. For the, the last question, or it's a combination, is how are you How are you getting people down ballot? How can people follow you? In the, to follow the me or our race? Follow you and the race. Well, you know, it's uh, you know a little bit of old school for me, pounding the pavement, going out to the stores, having meetings, meeting people, um, texting people. Being on radio shows like this, uh, going to be we have a big debate at UCI next week um, at the Student Center on Monday night at 6 p.m. It looks like about a two-hour debate. There's only three of the five mayors that have already agreed to it, myself, Mayor Khan, and Brandon Lynn. And I think that's going to be an extremely exciting uh, uh, debate next week. I can tell you that. I think there's going to be some fireworks. I can speak for myself, at least. Well, thank you for mentioning that. And we'll make sure we can put that in the podcast summary so people can continue to follow that put on by UCI, the Associate Student by, I think. So I want to thank you for your time. And I always like to thank candidates for running for office. It's a lot of hard work. So thank you so much for being on Ask the Leader today. Well, thank you, Claudia. And I'm my pleasure to be on Ask the Leader and good luck getting the other candidates. My guest was Tom Toman, tech sales executive and Irvine mayoral candidate, one of four candidates challenging incumbent mayor Farah Khan. The incumbent will be on the show on November 1st. We'll be right back with Democratic Congresswoman and UCI law professor Katie Porter running in the California 47th Congressional District. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for staying tuned. My next guest is Democratic Congresswoman and UCI law professor Katie Porter running in the California's brand new 47th Congressional District. She serves currently on the Committee on Natural Resources, chair of the Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations, and serves on the Subcommittees on Energy and Mineral Resources and the Subcommittee on Public Lands and National Parks. Also on the Committee on Oversight and Reform, she is the Vice Chair of the Subcommittee on Government Operations and serves on the Subcommittee on Economic and Consumer Policy. The caucuses, they are many. I'm going to list most of them just because you know where she's been affiliated and reaching out to so many different constituencies. Those affiliations include those caucuses, California Delegation, College Affordability Caucus, Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus, Congressional Armenian Caucus, Congressional Diabetes Caucus, Congressional LGBTQ+, Equality Caucus, Congressional Mental Health Caucus, the Progressive Caucus, the Task Force on Alzheimer's, and she's co-founder of the End Corruption Caucus, Future Forum, Gun Violence Prevention Task Force, Oceans Caucus, Rare Disease Caucus, Spent Nuclear Fuel Solutions, and I'm, I'm going to stop there. There's just a few more. A professor of law now on leave at UC Irvine, Congresswoman Porter's expertise includes bankruptcy, commercial law, consumer law, mortgage foreclosure, debt collection credit, and debit cards, empirical studies of legal systems. In addition to law professor, her leadership roles... 
includes Scoutmaster, and her first job she had was middle school math teacher. She is the author of the To Be Released in the Spring of 23. I'm quoting her title, I Swear Politics is Messier Than My Minivan. That's the end of the title quote. To interview her on radio means missing her iconic two props, her mother's vivid quilts behind her, or the whiteboard at her side. She comes today from her home in Irvine. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Congresswoman Katie Porter. Thank you so much, Claudia. It's a delight to be talking with you and your audience. Well, thank you so much. So you were first on here on 2018. You were my very first one in the midterm. So, so it's it's been a while. I've had your other I've had your staff stumping for you. So as I uh, to witness this incumbent's application, I just have to put a little bit more bio in ears to see her arrive at a grocery union event knowledgeable of the several unions inside the store, or she'll appear at an unassuming community center to inform constituents of the benefits of the child tax credit. And we're going to be bringing that up. So as I go through the three areas, that would be the Inflation Reduction Act, child credit, and the federal flood insurance program. What's going to be on top of mind for me, for listeners I'm imagining is how you're going to pursue that in either the majority, Democrats in the majority, or how you'll hold it together if the Democrats become the minority party. So let us begin with, it's a big bite to chew off, and that's why I've only picked three areas, because I'm assuming everybody knows, everybody knows the talking points of the Democratic Party. So I'm going to try to hone in on the Inflation Reduction Act. It it's actually, it tops off at, um, it really deals with about $800 billion. I mean, there's some people working around the $300 billion, but it's more, with everything considered, $800 billion here. Could you talk, Congresswoman Porter, about the most salient ways that this provides new employment opportunities while it also incentivizes constituents to decarbonize on the home front? Yes, thank you. The Inflation Reduction Act, is designed to put our economy on a path to future growth and stability um, by making sure that we are reducing our carbon footprint, that we are expanding our investment in green energy. And by the way, there's a lot to also bring down the cost of health care. But just focusing on the on the overall bill for right now, one of the things that I think very few people know about the Inflation Reduction Act is that it reduces the deficit by roughly $300 billion. And I think that's an important reminder for people that this is a forward-looking bill that President Biden is not just thinking about you know, himself and his next tweet, but is thinking about the future of our country. What kind of economy will be there in 10 years and in 20 years? So it lowers the deficit by $300 billion and invests in clean energy, which I'm going to talk more about. It cracks down on corporate tax cheats and it lowers costs for um, health insurance premiums and for seniors for pharmaceutical prices. Um, with regard to the clean energy, you know, the focus here is on making, as families make transitions, as they move, as they enjoy place appliances, that they're able, that every family is able to afford to make the switch to a more energy efficient green household appliance. A lot of our work in the Inflation Reduction Act and in the infrastructure law is on transportation, not electric vehicles. Transportation is the largest um, contributor to climate change. But coming in really close behind that, actually, is, is home electricity use and home use. So what this bill will do is give rebates or credits, tax rebates or credits, um, to people who purchase um, a greener, more efficient appliances, whether that's an induction stove, whether that's a heat pump, which keeps you cool as well as warm, um, that will make those things more affordable for folks. And I think we're going to see a lot of uptake in the Orange County area where we have really led the nation in some of these green technologies. Um, Irvine is home to one of the largest home appliance showrooms in the country. Um, and so we have a lot of early adopters here of these technologies that people can see. So I recently had the chance to go out into an Irvine home, see all of these different technologies in use, cook on an induction stove. It was fabulous. Um, I can't wait for these credits and rebates to go into effect next year so my constituents can begin to, to make these changes and be able to afford to do so. Well, I noticed that on Twitter in preparation, you brought 
the cabinet secretary, Jennifer Granholm, into a a climate scientist home in University Hills. <laughs> that's like a lot. That's a lot of brass. A congresswoman, a cabinet member. Actually, and, the professor lives um, in a different neighborhood. He lives um, sort of in the middle of Irvine. Oh, is that uh, where? Okay. Hills, but he is a university professor. And yes. um, we were able to walk through with Secretary Granholm. And it was, it was really delightful because they were, we were able to see the appliances at work. We were able to talk with the homeowner about how he made this transition, about what he thinks other, um, you know, his neighbors need to know about this. The secretary was able to fill in what is going on with the IRA. And I was able to ask a lot of questions about how are we going to help Americans learn about this? One of my passions is making sure that we're closing that gap between things that we hear announced at press conferences and then what really happens in people's lives. So right now my office is doing a lot of thinking about how are we going to bet a lot of planning? How are we going to best communicate with people about the amounts of credits and how they can take advantage of them? Because we don't want, we don't want this bill to just pass. We want it to, to make a difference in our carbon footprint here on the ground in California. Well, as you mentioned in that, uh, that opportunity here with the, the three of you, that as people's appliances break down, I can speak. I've got a lot of skin in that game. And so where I think, are we not waiting for January 1st, 2023 to, to take those rebates? Yes. So most of the rebates are anticipated to go into effect in early 2023. We're waiting on guidelines um, from the Secretary of Energy's office. And one of the things I talked with her about was the importance of making sure that these guidelines are clear, that they're not a lot of bureaucratic mumbo jumbo, that there's a real government effort put behind letting people know about them. Um, and so my office will be will be doing some of that work as well, communicating directly by mail, by media, um, on social media, making sure people know. But, you know, it's a real tie between my dishwasher and my stovetop, which one's going to go bad first. Um, so I, I absolutely cannot wait to be able to, to make some of these investments. And the credits and rebates are significant. Um, in many cases, can be hundreds and even thousands of dollars. So we're talking about really being able to, to make an investment. And you'll save on your energy bill going forward. So the cost of these appliances is brought way down. The quality of them has really increased. Um, and so I, I'm excited about this. And it was it was great to see them in action. Well, I guess one little tiny wrinkle might be, Congresswoman Porter, is that if everybody's waiting for the rebates to open up next January, there could be a little supply chain issue, no? Um, so actually, the part of the reason that there is this phase-in is it gives time for manufacturers to um, to ramp up production and to get those appliances here. Um, it gives time to educate contractors and sales rooms, show people. Um, and so one of the things we know right now is that some of our contractors who come out to repair kitchens or, um, you know, to builders, they need to know about what these incentives yeah. are, what choices they have, so that they can be making these decisions. It's not just about educating consumers. It's about educating that whole supply chain. So we're not anticipating any problems with this. And part of that is due to the president passing and Congress passing and the president signing into law the CHIPS Act which is a bill that would return the United States to being the dominant manufacturer of semiconductors in the world. That is really, really important to preventing supply chain hiccups and, frankly, to our national security, given that many of our weapons require these semiconductors and other high-tech devices. So we're already seeing new plants and new factories open up to manufacture semiconductors. Here, we've had some of that work here in Southern California. I'm looking forward to seeing it expand and continue. But that will also help prevent supply chain hiccups going forward. And so back, that's a fourth topic. We won't get to talk really about chips, but that's a good lip service paid to that. So, But I'm hoping Community Radio can step up and be a part of the public service announcement of how all of these things work and deadlines so Community Radio can do this. So for those of you who just joined me, my guest is UCI Law Professor, Democratic Congresswoman, K.D. Porter, running in California's new 47th Congressional District. She's being challenged by Republican nominee Scott Baugh. This district includes Irvine, Costa Mesa, Seal Beach, Huntington Beach, Newport Beach, and Laguna Beach. And that beach is my seg in two. We have Houston, a big liability redistribution issue with the National Flood Insurance Program. For those of People, I'm not going to get too geeky, although I sure would love to. That program is only as recent as 1968. That's when we decided to do put all these structures, coastal waterfront properties, to build those 
to have the National Flood Insurance Program back up the loans on these. It's a really a massive redistribution kind of program, of a redistribution of wealth. And so I wanted, as it's also a salient issue, not just because of Hurricane Ian wiping out, we've seen huge coastal swaths of coastal properties destroyed, but you, Congresswoman Porter, have new cities that are, there's multi-million dollar structures that are on sand spits that are covered with the National Flood Insurance Program. So there's, we have a brand new risk rating 2.0 that was enacted last year. And so I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about how you would either defend that risk rating formula that's going to incentivize various uh, you know, local government, state requirements to reduce that exposure to that uh, liability of coastal damage with climate change, intensifying this kind of thing, how you would defend that if it's under attack in, uh, with Democrats being in the minority, possibly. So to back up a step, I think the important thing for people to understand about why we created the National Flood Insurance Program in 1968 is that most homeowners insurance doesn't cover flood damage. So commercial insurers are not willing to provide this coverage. Part of that is because when a flood occurs, it is geographically concentrated. It can often be complete. Um, the, the expense of the damage can be severe. Um, and so what Congress is doing here is creating a flood insurance program to replace, to solve a problem that the market is not willing to solve. Those, this risk rating 2.0 is an effort to try to recalibrate the premiums to better reflect the actual risk. I do have concerns that these risk ratings are too much of a black box. FEMA has not been very transparent about how flood risk, climate risk, engineering risks are reflected in the new rates. So that's something that I think we ought to be asking questions about. When I was on the Financial Services Committee, this was something that I was following very, very closely. Um, that said, we do need to revamp the risk ratings. Um, we simply do not have uh, an adequate system that reflects what's likely to happen. So the current ratings don't reflect, for example, if you live near water, you might pay more. They're based on flood maps, the 100-year flood maps. But yet we know that a lot of our economic risk is outside those designated special flood hazard areas. So there's, I think this is a step in rethinking the flood insurance program. We do need to rethink it. Um, I have some concerns about transparency here. I'm also not certain this goes far enough, frankly, to be able to really put the flood insurance program on stable footing. Even with these changes, the national flood insurance program will remain insolvent. So I, I think we, we need to rethink this and recalibrate this. But the solution here isn't to pull back from this program. Climate change um, and the need for wildfire risk, which also increases mudslide risk and flood risk, we actually need to be reinvesting in, in rejuvenating this program to meet the moment where we are in terms of climate risk. And so when you say, because you, you're the person to ask this, when you're talking about a federal program's insolvency, if that accumulative debt now of, if I understand correctly, that the uh, National Flood Insurance Program is like, so I think it's $1.3 trillion. Where where does that insolvency get covered? Is it, is it a zero sum? It's coming from some other funding. Yes, we have to keep appropriating resources to the National Flood Insurance Program if the premiums are not adequate. On the other hand, we have to be thoughtful about how we change and adjust these premiums. These are people's homes we're talking about. Um, some of them are multi-million dollar newly purchased coastal homes, but others are, um, you know, long-time senior residents who could risk being priced out in fixed incomes who could be priced out of their homes with rapid increases in flood insurance. So one of the things that we're trying to grapple with here is recalibrating that flood insurance to make it more equitable. Um, to recognize that properties that are worth more ought to have to pay a lot more in the flood insurance program. Right now, the insurance program, before this change, didn't even take into account the size of the home. So this was designed to kind of be more of a, of a flat kind of insurance program, and I think we're now trying to mimic more what a commercial insurance program would do while maintaining baseline affordability. The bottom line is, 
flood insurance would not be affordable for anyone if the federal government didn't subsidize it and support it. Again, if it were something the market could do, the market would do it. So I, I do think this is an important. Floods can be devastating to communities. They can leave people homeless and without any of their belongings. Um, we do need to have that backstop, but we need to be thinking about how to do it in a way that assess, that encourages and incentivizes protecting our most fragile areas thinking about long-term zoning and reducing our overall national flood exposure. There, there, like there's that local component. Well, in the time remaining before you have to head to your next many, many meetings, the last big bite to chew off here is the child tax credit. It came to an end this year. I'd like to give you an opportunity to talk about what those goals were and how well they were achieved and what efforts are you putting into reinstating this to a more open-ended coverage, sort of like how Medicare never sunsets. So that's that would be the ideal, would it not? So first, it's important for everyone to know the child tax credit still exists. It's still very much part of our tax code. What has expired is an expansion of the child tax credit, which was made as part of the American Rescue Plan, made as part of our response to the economic and social risks of the pandemic. And what that expansion did um, was put more money in the pockets of families with children and as a result, slashed the child poverty rate by roughly 30%. So this is one of the most effective programs ever designed to reduce child poverty. Um, the data is really clear when you give, when we gave families extra money, through the expansion, the increase in the child tax credit, they spent that money on basic needs, more nutritious food, clothing, rent. Um, that expansion expired. The baseline child tax credit remains in place. And I think our real challenge here is trying to build more political support for that expansion of the child tax credit. Um, I used to, I sometimes here in the community, well, I don't have kids, so I don't benefit from the child tax credit. And I often say to people, Whoa, 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 whoa. Those children that you see walking around the neighborhood or in school, on school buses, that's your future workforce. That, those are the folks, if we give them good nutrition and good education, we reduce the harms of child poverty, that's going to be our future workforce. And we all benefit from having a strong and, and a vibrant future workforce. And reduction in child poverty is one of the ways you get there. So I think we need to educate more people about how the child tax credit is a policy that benefits everybody, rather than falling into what I think is a really wrong-headed way of thinking about it, which is this is something for just to help people who have children, or this is something to help people who live in this kind of community, or people who have this kind of income. We all benefit from a child tax credit. The United States provides way, way, way fewer benefits and support to young children than all of our global competitor nations. And so for me, this is an issue about being economically and globally competitive. How are we going to compete with the future, the future workforce of places in uh, China and, and Korea and other countries if we are not making the same investments in our kids? So I, I continue to talk with constituents about this, try to educate them about this, and I'm hopeful we can reinstate this policy next year. Well, thank you for that. And the work ahead, folks. Um, I just want to close. What Congresswoman Porter is your preferred way to hear from a constituent. That's the last, last. Yes, absolutely. So if you are currently in the 45th congressional district, which is what's going to be what's the lines, the area I currently represent through January 3rd, um, this would be uh, Anaheim Hills, Tustin, Irvine, Lake Forest, Mission Viejo, Rancho Santa Margarita, Laguna Woods, Silverado Canyon. If you're in those communities, the very best thing to do is just to call my office on either Washington or Irvine, or use our online comment form. Um, we get those messages. I, I review lots of them. I write back to some of them. I write back to all the kids who write me, for mm -hmm. example, to, to see what's on the mind of our future generation. Um, so calling the office is the very best way. Um, if you're part of a community group and you'd like to have a meeting with us or have us come tour your business, um, you can fill out the online meeting request. And that is actually the fastest way um, to get notified. If you're one of my future potential constituents, if you're a voter in the 47th Congressional District, you can visit katieporter.com. Um, this is Seal Beach, Huntington Beach, 
Costa Mesa, Irvine, Newport Beach, and Laguna Beach. Um, you can go to katieporter.com, learn more about my policy positions, follow us on social media at katieporteroc. All right, that you heard there. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time. Thank you for taking the time to be on Ask a Leader, Congresswoman Katie Porter. Thank you so much. My guest was UCI law professor, Democratic Congresswoman Katie Porter, running in the 47th Congressional District. And she's challenged by Republican nominee Scott Baugh, whom I interviewed on May 31st, going into the California primary. That interview is archived on my website, askaleader.com. This district, again, it's Irvine, Costa Mesa, Seal Beach, Huntington Beach, Newport Beach, and Laguna Beach. We'll be right back with some announcements at the close of this little music break. Well, I have a few announcements, everybody. Coming up this end of this week, October 13th through October 16th, that's Thursday through Saturday, at the UCI Arts Campus, the 25th anniversary of the African American Art Song Alliance, founded by UCI's professor of music, Dr. Daryl Taylor. Uh, he did this, set this up in 97. It's a particular advocacy organization representing black composers of Western classical art songs. This quinquennial conference is unique and inspirational for scholars and performers of this music. So you can learn more about the conference. It's free to uh, all you takers. It's not just the artists and the performers and scholars, but, you know, I, I went to uh, a couple of these in the previous years. You can go to the website music.arts.uci.edu. Come be a part of this community of like-minded supporters and uh, go also to the artssongalliance.org. That's where you can get more information. And now, folks, I, I would like to close with an adage that I'm continuing to sort of craft for your attention, your careful consideration. And it's about disinformation disorientation campaigns, pernicious effect on all of us. When you're provoked, you know, like in social media, just as though you were a pedestrian about to cross the street, stop at that provocation. Look both ways before proceeding into the messy, toxic, bantering traffic. The bad guys win if you don't take this necessary precaution. Wedges, like collisions, are consequential. Wedges can undermine democracy. Democracy might erode further if we take that provocation bait. I won't. I hope you don't either. Okay, that's my wrap. Next week, my guests include Ryan Dack, running for the South Orange County Community College District. And then we will hear from Simon Moon. He's a candidate running for Irvine mayor and will continue to reach out to more local candidates. Some invited and uh, some just aren't responding. So wish me well on that. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Register, confirm your registration, repeat with your loved ones and your coworkers. Mm-hmm.